Thank you so much for inviting me to be with you. It's an honor and a kindness, and I really appreciate it. I appreciate City Church and the journey that you've all been on uh, and your partnership in the gospel for these many years. Uh, as Amy mentioned, I've been good friends with John for a long time, and uh, maybe uh, some of you don't know, we, we uh, planted, as she said, about the same time and we were both renting facilities, and there was one point in time where we're at our facility now, and uh, that was uh, from the same denomination that you guys are all a part of. And there were some phone calls that kind of happened, like, hey, uh, is City Church kind of interested in this? And, you know, we're, we're over on, you know, the east side of the south, so, you know, it ain't, ain't the same as the west side. But anyway... Uh, Really, uh, I so appreciated John and City Church's posture at the moment was, no, we recognize that God is doing something with the urban refuge in that community, so we're really not going to engage in that conversation and encourage you to kind of move forward with them, and we ended up getting our facility. Years later, when the Nazarene Church here was kind of going through their exiting and closing out, uh, our church got some calls uh, through relationships and different things like, hey, this building might be available. Is thinking of planting. And, and at the same time, I knew John from the pastor's prayer gathering that City Church was profoundly interested in trying to pursue this facility. And uh, we responded in kind, like, no, you know, God is doing something. And really think City Church is the ones that you should be ta talking to. So uh, all of that to say is I appreciate the kingdom-mindedness of the church, and it's a beautiful thing, and I think when we are aware of one another as the body of Christ and what God is doing in different places throughout the city and among his people, it's a good thing that we, we're not competing, and uh, I've always felt like City Church is a complementary dynamic to the urban refuge and, and a great thing to be on the south side together, so I really appreciate uh, getting to be here today and talk with you and share with you. And we're going to continue exploring. I love the series that you're doing, the Beatitudes. It's such a good thing. And listen to Kara's message last week, and she mentioned about the four first uh, attitudes that are there about being our relationship with God, you know, being poor in spirit, and we receive the kingdom of heaven. We mourn and we receive comfort. Uh, if we're meek, we inherit the earth, and if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be filled. And I think there's a vulnerability when uh, we connect with our relationship with God that way, and we receive, and we receive, and we receive. The first response of us in our humanity, especially in our culture in the West here, is, okay, what am I supposed to do, right? We, we move to the doing right away. And in some, some sense, that's, that's good, it's healthy, there are things that we need to do, but the Beatitudes continues with four more on really how you're supposed to be. Uh, and I've wondered about that, um, I've been thinking a lot lately about uh, the word posture, and what's it mean to have a posture before the Lord and with one another, and I maybe want you to think about that as we navigate through the message here today. Uh, posture is less about what we do, and it's more about the way that we deal with life. It's how we consider our approach, the way we behave in certain circumstances. And isn't it interesting that 
what the church was called early on. Does anybody know what it was called in the book of Acts? They referred to it as the way, right? They referred to it as the way. Those, those people are the way, or they're on the way, or they're about the way. And uh, so I, I think uh, it's, it's really relevant for us to consider how, what's the way that we go about life? What's the way? That, what we do is important, but how we are is really important, perhaps even more important, I would say. And we ask people all the time, <clears throat> we say, how are you doing? <laughs> and that's kind of a conflict, I think. Maybe we should split that up into two questions and say, what are you doing and how are you being? How are you being? And can you imagine responding, I'm being poor in spirit. I'm being mournful. I'm being meek. I'm being hungry. I'm being merciful. The way that we are, the how we live life, the how we approach it is really important. And that's what these next four B attitudes get at is the way, the how to go about life, whatever you're going to do. And uh, today's beatitude is fantastic. Uh, it's Matthew 5.8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I think that's a bit uh, intimidating on one hand and hopeful on the other hand. Like how many of you, if I said, hey, stand up. All who are pure in heart, stand up. Raise your hand high today. <laughs> you might be, I don't know if I want to say that. I'm sure not going to be the first one to stand up and do that. It feels like, man, that's a really high standard to be pure in heart. But there's also a powerful promising uh, hope that goes with it that says, oh, when, when you are pure in heart, you get to see God. So let's unpack that a little bit. Let's talk about the heart. Emily Dickinson wrote this in 1862. The heart wants what it wants. Have you ever heard somebody say that or express that in sentiment kind of one way or the other? Like, well, the heart, the heart wants what it wants. A modern-day poet repeated something similar. He said, save your advice because I won't hear. You might be right, but I don't care. The heart wants what the heart wants. You know who that poet is? It's Selena Gomez. <laughs> She's a modern-day pop singer. And that's what she wrote in her song. And there, there is some uh, dynamic of truth, I think, with this. When our affections get excited towards something or someone, right, uh, we feel this pull. And the heart wants what it wants. And, and so it, it, it excels us and it moves us towards things and people and ideas. Uh, we see this on uh, the news. I was watching yesterday uh, and all through the week, I think, the accumulation of uh, internal evidence that's coming out of a major social media platform, if you've been up with the news, and this tension that they're having between uh, what gets presented there, what creates income, and those kind of things. And uh, we know that uh, a lot of conflict and controversy happens via social media. And, you know, what level of responsibility a, a social media platform is supposed to have, that, that could all be discussed and debated, and I think there's some merit to that. But I thought, well, I'm not sure how much of a difference it will make because what's really at the heart of it is a heart issue, right? 
So someone sees something that says something that they really want in their heart to be true, and it entices and it excites and it incites a little bit of emotive dynamic to it, like, oh, that's a, I can zing somebody on the other side, and I, I, I feel this, this enthusiasm, this rush of adrenaline in my heart, and I share it, and I feel satisfaction when I do that. That's pretty hard to control. <laughs> That's hard enough to control in person, let alone sitting behind a desk and typing in some things. And so that, that emotion comes along and it excites the heart and bam, let me repost this. And on it goes and it spreads. And uh, you know, I'm not pointing to a particular tribe in that. I think there's multiple tribes that are both... Uh, well, let me say this. I'm pointing to our humanity. Our humanity, we struggle with this because the heart is really powerful and that we should understand that, we should recognize that and honor that, that that's part of the way that God created us with those seat of emotions that affect our life, it affects the way we do things and what we do. It's really central to who we are and how we be, Right? There's a couple major flaws, though, with Emily Dickinson's uh, assertion. And the first error uh, or problematic issue with it is this. We think because the heart wants what it wants, I'm at the whim of its desires. I know uh, someone close to me that was married, and at 70, uh, her spouse decided, uh, you know, I'm in love with somebody else. And the reasoning was, well, love is just love, and the heart wants what the heart wants. That was the whole basis for ending their relationship. And it was painful, it was disruptive, it was abrupt, and it was very hard. And in essence, this person was saying, listen, I just can't control that. If that's what the heart wants, then that's just what I have to follow. If it were inevitable uh, that giving into our desires is the only way <clears throat> to go, we wouldn't see a directive like this from Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Right? God says there's these things that I want you to guard. I want you to put some protection around. And, and if you recognize how powerful the motivation of your heart is, then you also need to understand that there's vulnerabilities that go with that. And God says, I'm instructing you to guard that, to be thoughtful about that, to be careful, to be wise. Now, there are several things <clears throat> that the Scripture reminds us that we're to keep watch over. Our tongue, Psalm 34, 14, keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking lies. Your eyes, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Matthew 5.29, that's pretty harsh. <laughs> like, whoa, that's serious. Like, what am I putting before my eyes? And correspondingly, our actions, verse 30, says if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. <clears throat> I don't think God's wanting us to do that literally, but it's like, it's trying. He, Jesus, this is a little further down in the Sermon on the Mount from the passage that we're talking about today. It's like, listen, these things are really serious. And if these things are leading you somewhere, you have to take actions to respond and to curb those dynamics. We're told 
uh, about our minds. Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Our steps, Ecclesiastes 5.1, guard your steps as you go into the house of God and draw near and listen. But this scripture, 4.23, Proverbs says, but above all else. So guard all these things. Watch your tongue, watch your eyes, watch your actions, watch your mind, watch your steps. But above all of those, guard your heart. Be careful, be thoughtful, be wise. Keep your heart with all vigilance, another version says. Another one says, guard your affections because they affect everything you do. We are to keep a watchful eye and a strict hand upon all the emotions of our inward being. But I I, I caution us to say that doesn't mean we're not supposed to feel. God created us to feel. And sometimes in the realm of Christianity, we kind of shun emotions and we shun passion or we try to really limit it. Passion, when it's uh, aimed the right way, is a beautiful thing. And I think a God-supported thing and a God-encouraged thing. And that's why he's saying, listen, when you're pure at heart, you're going to see me. And I, I want, in those cases, to follow your heart, to follow the way, because it's going to lead you, if it's aligned right. But you've got to make sure that you're guarding it, and you're cautious, and you recognize the vulnerabilities of where it can take you. <clears throat> the second misconception is because the heart wants what it wants, it's similar, I should always follow it. So the, on the one hand, you say, <clears throat> well, I'm helpless, uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I can't really control it like it wants what it wants, and I'm, I'm just at its will. No, you're not. Guard your heart. The other thing is, well, if the heart is so powerful and it feels things so deeply, then <clears throat> I've got to follow my heart. But here's the problem. <clears throat> Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful. And then look at these next words, above all things. So guard it above all else, guard it. The heart is deceitful above all things. There's a little connection there, I think, that I didn't notice until just now. Above all, it's a big deal. And beyond cure, who can understand it? See, our hearts will mislead us. So we're not uh, obliged to follow the heart, and we must recognize our hearts are not always right. Fake promises, fake fulfillment, fake conclusions, fake wisdom. We all get those and we're incredibly vulnerable to getting juked by our heart. And you think something has happened. You think, you know, like a football player running something like, I got this, I got this. The offensive player is coming toward him. I got this, I got this. And bam, face plant. And on the runner goes. And that can be how life feels sometimes. Like, yeah, my heart, I want this, I want this, I want this. And then you get close, and it's like, sidestep. I remember as a young Christian, I really wanted to be a leader. Really wanted to be a leader. And I wanted to be a leader because I wanted other people to follow me. And I wanted other people to see me as a leader. See, my heart was after a position but my posture was all wrong. It was misplaced. What, you know, there was a, a little bit of mix of some good, but a lot of it was not so good. 
And so I'm in these small groups in our church way back in the day, some 30 years ago, and uh, the feedback comes, uh, comes to me and says, you know, you talk a lot. <laughs> you talk a lot. And you kind of think it's helping everybody else, but you're just talking a lot. And I, I, we were uh, recently married. <laughs> and uh, uh, we would go to small group. And, you know, some people have those marriages like, man, we've been in love since the day we met, and it's just the best thing in my life. And uh, I can't imagine just, you know, it's just been wonderful bliss. So one out of 100, thank you for that example. Uh, but, but for us, like, First two months was really good, and then the next two years were really hard, really difficult. And we had a lot of arguments. We had a lot of, you know, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So we was up till two or three in the morning <laughs> trying to hold the sun up in the sky still, trying to follow that verse. But what would happen is we would get to small group, and so this issue would come up, and I would share... <clears throat> without my wife's permission. Oh, here was our struggle this week, and here's how it worked out. And my wife's like, uh, you didn't tell me about that struggle. You didn't tell me about that. And so I, would, I was presenting as all of our issues were wonderfully resolved in the grace of Jesus Christ. And my wife was like, you talk too much. <laughs> and it wasn't so much that she was not willing to be open and vulnerable, but it was my posture. And it was because I wanted to be a leader. I wanted to be seen as someone that had advice to offer or that had it together. But my influence was totally crumbling away and was decreasing and decreasing and decreasing because my posture was wrong. My heart wanted this, but I was going about it the way I was going about it was not the right way. Proverbs 20:17, food gained by fraud tastes sweet to a man, but he ends up with a mouthful of gravel. And that's what I had, just like that football player, face planting the ground, a mouthful of dirt. Because of the way, the how that I was going about it. <clears throat> and I remember when that began to change, uh, for the first time I started to see leadership differently. I was uh, eventually, I don't know, a year or two later, asked to, to just share a short thought over communion. And uh, we had a, a guy's discipleship group that I was in with one of the pastors. And, and so I went that way, and I was like, yeah, let me share this prayer request, uh, which was in my mind was like, let me inform you that I've been asked. <laughs> I've been asked to share over the communion thought during the service. And I realized if I share this, it was about informing them. It really had nothing to do with asking them for prayer for me. So I said, God, uh, I don't need to tell anyone anymore. What I want is for you to be honored in the midst of this communion. And if you want to use me to serve that way in a way that could help the congregation, no one needs to know but me and you. And God, you know, what's the scripture say? God gives what to the humble? Grace to the humble. But he opposes the proud. 
And I think that was a really important moment in my journey to becoming a pastor a few years later, was when I began to see leadership is really, it's about an act of service that says, let me get out of the way so you can see Jesus. Rather than like, hey, glorify Jesus, and hey, I'm up here too. <laughs> you know, look this way. Yeah, Jesus is there, but look over here. That's not what leadership is about. It's about getting out of the way so that people can see Jesus and serving him in a way that points to him and his honor and glory. And that was a big shift uh, for me. That was like getting some of the gravel out of my teeth and out of my mouth and saying, the way you go about this, your posture is really important. So the heart wants what it wants is not something to live by, but there's power there and we shouldn't ignore it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It's intimidating, <clears throat> but it's hopeful. So what does it take to be pure in heart and experience the blessedness of seeing God? How do we be that? The first thing, and I think it's really important, three things I'm going to give you today, is, is to embrace our posture. Embrace our posture. I'm sharing this verse from the Passion uh, Translation. It's more of a paraphrase than it is a translation, but I, I liked and resonated with the way it said this. Maybe you've heard this verse before in another context, Colossians 1.21. Even though you were once distant from him, living in the shadows of your evil thoughts and actions, he reconnected you back to himself. He released his supernatural peace to you through the sacrifice of his own body as the sin payment on your behalf so that you may dwell <clears throat> in his presence. And now there is nothing between you and the Father God, for he sees you as holy, flawless, and restored. If indeed you continue to advance in your faith, in faith, assured of a firm foundation to grow upon, never be shaken from the hope of the gospel that you have believed in. Are we embracing our position? That's who we are because of Jesus. So purity of heart is not something you achieve on your own. That's something that only God can do. That's only something that Jesus Christ does. Now, if I were to ask you this morning, how many of you, raise your hands, stand up, uh, are holy, flawless, and completely restored? You know, you might not feel that, but that's your identity in Christ. That's who you are because of Him. And so part of that is learning to embrace how does God see us now? What am I like in His eyes Rather than looking through, who is your greatest critic? I know my greatest critic is me. The guy looking at myself in the mirror. I say the harshest things to myself. I say things to myself that uh, would not be healthy <laughs> for other people to get away with. Like, that would be really toxic. So what voice do you look, listen to that, that affirms your position before the Lord? He says, you were an enemy, but now I've made you. Because of what I've done, because of what happened on the cross, and that faith that married my sacrifice for you, you are holy and blameless in my sight. And when I look at you, I don't see every fault that you have. 
Oh, I know them all. That's not what I look at. That's not how I identify you now. I identify you as mine. My child, adopted, brought near. I've made you holy and blameless and pure. That's what my shedding of blood did for you. And when you're living in that identity, that affects how you go about life. That's embracing this position and uh, allowing ourselves to live into who God says we are. It's an immersion of a new reality. It's a new life. The Bible tells us the old is gone, the new has come. Ezekiel 36 talks about I'll sprinkle clean water. I'll give you a clean heart, a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I make you tender. I make you pure and moving towards something that you can let loose more of your passions into because you're rooted in who I am. So that's super, super important. And I think that continuing is coming back to that over and over and over again. God, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? There's a song by Maverick City, and there's a, a, a cadence in the song that says, I am who you say I am. I won't sing any more than that, I promise. And, but just over and over again, I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am. That's a beautiful thing, and we have to root our identity and our position in that. The second thing, uh, the first one <clears throat> was embrace our position. The second one is I, our posture. And talked a little bit about this earlier, but James 4, 7, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. You double-minded, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humility is super underrated. But I think it's, it should be when, when we think of what God has done, when we think of the position that he has given to us, holy and blameless in his sight, drawing near to us as we draw near to him. Boy, that should humble us. That should humble us. And, and if people were to ask, you know, what is so-and-so like? As followers of Christ, I would hope that most, the first response that people would say about Jesus' followers is, they're really humble. They're so humble. We're told in Philippians 2, your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ, being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So our position is holy and blameless. Our posture and what we should be marked as and known for first is humble. And there's all kinds of skills and abilities and, you know, talents and uh, many ways that we impact and influence the world. We're designed to influence one another. But humility should be out front. And I would encourage you, uh, if you have the courage to do this, to ask people, hey, could I, 
could I ask you, if you were to describe me, how high would humble be on the list? Sometimes really good to see the way we are. I've heard it said at best we can see about 60% of the way we are with other people. 40% of it we just miss. It's like the backside of my life. That would take courage. And, and for someone that you know, that knows you well, but is not so impressed by you that they won't tell you the truth, how, how does humility rank when you think about me and my life and the way I interact, the how I am, my being? The last one, encounter God in his word. You've perhaps heard this verse before, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Uh, Devin saying about that. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We don't need to pretend with God. He sees it all. But his word, and friends, let me tell you this morning, without immersing ourselves in God's word, it's really easy to become self-absorbed and self-deceived. The heart can do that. And we are vulnerable to foolishness and susceptible to even calling evil good when we don't hold the mirror up that peeks into our soul, peers into our soul, And that work of dividing those things out in our heart. If it's deceptive, beyond all things, who can cure it? Jesus is the one (laughs) that can purify our hearts. And he's done that in our position, but he wants to do that in our sanctification and how we live. And God's word is one of the greatest, I think is the greatest resource to sift those things out. Where am I off? Lord, see if there's any offensive way. Search my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's what God calls us to. And when we do that, we begin to see God more clearly because we aren't letting our hearts deceive us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for your love for us, your encouragement. Thank you for the position that you give us that we didn't earn or deserve, but by your grace, we have been made right with you and you have not only pardoned all of our sin, but you have put in us your spirit, your identity. We are now children. How great the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. God, thank you for that. Help us, Lord, to watch our posture Help us to keep guard over our heart. Help us to walk in humility and to put ourselves and be present in your word and to hear from you and allow you to sift through and judge our thoughts and attitudes and lead us in the way everlasting. We love you, Jesus, and we long to follow you. Help us in your name. Amen.